maybe it just seems it to me, or maybe it's my age, but I have an inordinate number of friends who are now facing significant cancer scares. Um, one of them is a woman who cut my hair for more than two decades, Nikki Wilson. And um, so if you're a prayerful person, hold them up in prayer. And if you're a thoughtful person, then send them good thoughts. If you're an energy person, send them love and light and good energy because it never hurts. It never hurts, and there are miracles that are out there. They just are in my thoughts today. Thanks for listening, and here's Amy. And I said, but I I can handle this. Like, I've dealt with this. You know, that whole industry is abuse and sexual harassment. And I said, I'm not afraid of them. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words, my podcast in which I try to learn how to listen to women. And I find if I go in, not as an interview, but just as a conversation to try to learn something about people, I learn an awful lot by just asking open-ended questions and seeing where the conversation goes. And in this case, my friend Amy Bristle Benfield. Uh, It goes all the way from New York to the mountains of North Carolina to NC State to WRAL, my old haunts, and now over here to Charlotte, my current haunts. And uh, she said it was so fun to talk and makes her long for her radio days. And she had a little stint in the bigs, called up for a cup of coffee in Chicago and talks all about that. And in uh, the company of a lot of hostile men, including one she almost punched out. <laughs> it's a great story. I thoroughly enjoy it. And we veer into politics toward the end in an unexpected and affirming conversation. Amy Bristle Benfield. Where were you born? Long Island, New York, West Islip. Yeah, so we didn't live there very long. So I don't claim New York to really be home. Um, We moved when I was three. So there are four of us. So I'm the youngest of four, but I'm like almost like an only child because they're five, seven and 10 years older than I am. So they wanted nothing to do with me. But we moved to the mountains of North Carolina. So my dad was from Michigan. He's one of 13. And so he decided he wanted to move his kids, which, you know, from New York to a farm in North Carolina. So 16 acres in the mountains of North Carolina in Ash County in Jefferson, North Carolina. So rural, rural North Carolina in 1979. So you can imagine what a culture shock that was, not for me at three years old, but for my brother, my oldest brother at 13 and my middle brother at 10. My sister, not so much at seven, still happy-go-lucky, but for a 13 and a 10-year-old, like, you know, there was the, there was a Roses, there was an A&P, and there was like, when people say I came from a town with one stoplight, there was literally one stoplight. I mean, you go up there now, and it, there's like Jefferson Landing Golf Course and million-dollar homes, and it's like a destination, and then... It wasn't. So for me, home is like the mountains of North Carolina. I love it up there. It is, that is where uh, we have, we bought my grandparents' house in 2009 up there. Um, It went, it went up for sale and we bought it as a family. And I hit Wilkesboro and that's just about 30 minutes from, from the house. And when I hit Wilkesboro, my blood pressure goes down and that's probably the way I'm built. I'm so, I'm so high, like anxiety high, but, but energy high. And that is where the blood pressure actually goes down. And I become like this calm person. My husband says he sees it. He's like, I'd love to put a blood pressure cuff on you and like, just take it when we hit Wilkesboro, because I just, 
get this, like, I can actually go there and sit and be quiet and still, which is something I can never, ever, ever do in my normal life. What did your mother think about moving from Long Island? I think for, well, the funny thing is, you know, I'm such an extrovert and my sister is such an extrovert and my mom hated people. She just, she just disliked everyone that wasn't her family pretty much. And, and she wasn't, she wasn't a mean person. She just, she just didn't, she, she was such an introvert, like the true meaning of an introvert. She, you know, she would talk about when they lived in Long Island and they lived in a neighborhood and, um, and she, she had, you know, she and my dad got married and nine months later had their first baby. And then two years later, they had two more kids. They had kids every two years until five years later, they had this baby that, that she claims, you know, so, so she, she had three kids. She had them all out of diapers, all in school. And then, you know, what do you do? Oh, let's have another baby, which I always said was such bull crap, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've got all these kids. And what am I going to do? Oh, let's have a baby. So, you know, I always knew I was an oops baby. Um, my grandmother would say, no, your mother wanted you very much. But, um, you know, she would talk about when she had these, these three babies that these mothers were so like in they, everybody, you know, had kids and would, they would show up on her doorstep and just expect her to make coffee and would just come in the house because that's what everybody in the neighborhood did. And it would make her insane because that, that wasn't her. She wanted to be left alone with her children and everything. So I almost think for her moving to that 16 acres where nobody could get to her was probably kind of like a reprieve. You know, she, she kind of was able to decide if they, they, she made friends or if she saw people. And, and I think it, for her, it was actually kind of nice. And, and I think it kind of worked for her. And it was nice for me. And, and it was kind of interesting. And I think it, it says a lot about who I am because my brothers and sisters, obviously the, the age gap is, is weird because, you know, five years to my closest sibling, that five year age gap is weird, right? You don't really catch up almost until you're 20. And, you know, till my, till I was 20 and my sister was 25, right? You have nothing in common, even at that 10 and 15, when she was 15 and I was 10, there's really nothing until you get to be 20 and 25. So I grew up almost like an only child and with no kids around me because we lived two miles off the main road. So I didn't grow up in a neighborhood. I didn't really see kids my own age until I went to elementary school. So I grew up as my grandparents lived on the property with us. They moved from New York eventually. We built them a house. That's the house we own up there. And we lived in what was called the big house, which by any standards of today is not that big of a house. Um, And so I played with my mom and my dad and my grandparents. And so I never this is why I ended up never liking kids my age. It's why I married men that were older than I am. You know, it's, it's why I didn't like kids my age. It's why I never hung out with the kids my age. And I think it was because I just didn't, I didn't know how to, my mom and dad eventually, like my dad always was very outgoing. So my mom would have to have dinner parties and people would bring their kids and I would throw a fit about sitting at the kids table. I would make a a huge stinking deal and my mom would have to pull a chair up and I would sit at the adult table because I would refuse to spend any time with the kids. So yeah, it was, it was really interesting. interesting. There aren't such thing as kids who are unplanned, but very much wanted. Did you feel wanted? Oh, completely. I mean, it, you know, weirdly, um, I mean, I think I was doted, you know, very doted upon, very put on a pedestal, very much. I really treated like an only child. Um, you know, I, I've walked on water. It, it's, it's, it was an amazing, I always say it, it, it's, it's very special to be a Bristol kid. It was a very special thing. If you went to bed and you told my mom and dad, you know, I, I want to be an astronaut in the morning, they would have a a spaceship built in the backyard. And so I was really, really lucky to be a Bristol kid. What'd you tell them you wanted to be? Uh, Well, my sister and I both told them we wanted to be actresses and we wanted to, to do that. And so my mom literally got an apartment in New York City and left the farm 
and took my sister and I to New York City. She took my sister first because my sister really expressed an interest. Well, we, we threw a loop at my mom. So my sister, who really had no talent, none of us had any, we didn't know we had any talent. Uh, they, in the elementary school, um, we went to Jefferson Elementary. They, they put out this thing and said, hey, there's going to be this thing called the Little Miss Ash County pageant because we lived in Ash County. And my sister said to my mom, I want to be in that. And of course, my mom, this introvert, you know, who she's beautiful, beautiful lady, but said a pageant and my, you know, what are you going to do for talent? And my grandfather was a musician by trade. He played in big bands. Um, he was in the Hal Horfman Orchestra was where he retired from. And my sister said, I want to sing. And my mom said, nobody sings. And so she put together this outfit for my sister and she sang, um, Annie, get your gun. And she won. Right. Crazy. First pageant she ever entered. So of course big I fish in a small pond. Right. And so I said the next year I want to enter. And so I entered and I sang rubber ducky and I won. So then my sister said, well, I really want to try to be an actress. So my mom got this apartment in New York city, West 55th street in the same apartment. My aunt cookie lived in, she was living in the, which is my mom's best friend. She wasn't really our aunt got this apartment in New York city, took my sister, I stayed home with my dad and my brothers. And then I said, I wanted to go. So I went and we got an agent and we lived in New York city. I was in second grade. My sister was in seventh grade and we, we did commercials and movies and we did it for two years. And my mom said she would do it for two years. And if, you know, two years is about the length you do it. And if you don't become whoever, you know, you don't become Drew Barrymore in two years, that's about the time you cut it loose. Right. If you know anything about that business. Um, and it was, it was amazing. I, I was in Ghostbusters. I was in, I did Flamingo Kid with Matt Dillon. And did I you have any speaking. I did. I got my SAG, my AFTRA and my equity card. I did an off-Broadway show. I did a Jell-O Pudding Pops commercial with Bill Cosby. Um, and I, I did well because um, I'm so small for my age. So um, they would cast me in, in parts where like I could play a three-year-old but I was, you know, I was, I could play a five-year-old, but I was seven, right? So they would cast me because it was easier to work with a seven-year-old who looked like a five-year-old. And so I did a lot better than my sister who was, who was in, you know, who was a 12-year, I mean, it was a 12-year-old, but looked like a 15-year-old. So that was a problem, right? She developed, I didn't. So she did not, she didn't do as well as I did, but I did, I did well for while I was there. So we did that for two years, but that's the example of how my parents were like, you know, whatever your dream is, we'll make it come true. I mean, you imagine. Now, did you not want to go home once you were, once you saw the big lights? Um, I think we trusted my mom. I mean, your kids, right? Your mom said you got to go so home. So you didn't throw a fit. No, I don't think we threw a fit. It was really, I think even at that age, because I was, I was seven by the time we left and, and my mom, my sister was getting to that age where things were becoming important. Like she saw her friends at home cheerleading and, and those kinds of things were starting where you start to get to that age where those kinds of things are coming up. And, and I think I was too young to really realize, you know, and it's a hard life. I mean, you're, you know, when you're going to school on set and those kinds of things, and it's a job. I mean, it really is like, you know, it is like work. And I think I don't remember really being distraught about it. I don't have any memories of being really mad at my mom and, and being away from my dad was hard. Um, and, you know, missing my friends. Cause at that point I had made friends in school and, and I, I found letters um, I was cleaning up my, my mom and dad's storage unit because my mom and dad passed away not long ago. And I found letters that I had written, I kept, that I had written with my friends, writing back and forth. And so I think I was probably missing, you know, you're missing some of that connection that you had, even though um, when you, you have friends in school there, you're out of school so much because I worked a lot. I mean, I had a lot of extra you do a lot of extra work, but when you do extra work, when you have an agent, that's paid work. So you stay on set. You don't go just as an extra for a day. Like Flamingo Kid, I was on that set out in out on the beach in New York. We were out in the in the beach with Gary Marshall. Loved me, um, so he gave me a speaking role that I botched for like three days. I my one line was um, "Get off my back, Alfred." <laughs> 
that I had to say to Matt Dillon. And this was in the age of Give Me a Break, the show Give Me a Break. And I kept saying, Give Me a Break. And Gary Marshall was getting so frustrated with me because he kept saying, he finally sat me down and he explained to me, Give Me a Break is very 80s. And this movie is being filmed in the 50s. I will never forget Gary Marshall sitting across from me and trying to explain to me, no child would say, give me a break. This is filmed in the, you know, this movie is set in the 50s and they would say, get off my back. And I kept, I had this, such this mental block. And I kept saying, you know, and anyway, it ended up on the cutting room floor after all this work that he did with me. Can you still over. see yourself? In the I can still see myself talking to Gary Marshall because he loved Can you see his. yourself in the film? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and they ended up, my sister came, had to come on set with me for a couple of days. Mom had to bring her with me. And he loved my sister and ended up putting her as an extra in the film. And you can see me. So you can see me in the very beginning. You can see me in the opening scene walking from an aerial view. This is the only place you can see me in the film. And then you can see my sister, Fisher Stevens, is walking by with Matt Dillon. And they're walking by. They're going to a poker game. And they gave my sister this big bouffant hairdo. And you can see her on a rail walking by. And so you can see us in these little clips. And the only place, the only movie I did that you can really, really see me in is Sidney Portier. Again, for some reason, picked me out in the crowd and put me very front in a shot in a movie he did called Fast Forward. It was a breakdancing movie that Sidney Portier did. And it was in a crowd scene. Not he, his best known not work. His best, <laughs> not his best work. But he pulled me out in this crowd scene that I got pulled in as an extra for. And you can see me in it, and um, and they're doing it in the middle of um, of uh, Times Square. They're um, they're dancing, and he pulled me to the very front, and you can see me very distinctly in the front. And this girlfriend of mine was in college, and she happened to be home on a break from school, and she calls me and she says, "I have to ask you a question because she grew up with me in the mountains." She said, "Were you in a movie called this?" stupid movie called flashback <laughs> and flash forward and i said yes and she said i'm watching this movie and i see this little amy bristol standing there watching these break dancers was that you and i said yeah she said i just saw you in this stupid movie you know so did yeah, you so, get credit oh yeah i get no not credit because i was an extra um, so I don't have. Uh, so you weren't in the, the credits. credits. No. Yeah. You don't have an IMDb. I don't have an IMDb. Uh, no. But I but I did get my I got my my SAG card for that, and then my equity card I got because I was in a um, off Broadway show called um, I Never Saw Another Butterfly. It was an uplifting movie about a con an uplifting show about a concentration camp. Not no, but it was <laughs> it was a great show about a, uh, the kids in concentration camps, uh. and um, and then um, I got my um, obviously got my AFTRA for doing the voiceover work that I did. Did you have to learn something about concentration camps? We then? did, yeah. The The director of the show, and this will tell you about what a different age it was. I was still doing that show when we moved back to North Carolina. And my mom used to drive me to Greensboro and put me on a plane. And the producer would pick me up on the other end. And I would stay in his apartment with he and his partner, right? This is such a different age that, that my your parents in the 80s would put you on a plane to stay with a gay couple in New York and not think a world of thing about it, um, you know, as a seven year old child, can you imagine in this day and age that someone would, you know, would stranger danger, right? Yeah. Like she would, she put me on the plane and I would stay with he and his partner. They would, we, I remember specifically, we would watch night court and that's what I would do. Watch night court with them at night when we came back. But yeah, they, I still have the book they gave me, which is called, I never saw another butterfly with all the artwork. And I have the original picture I played a girl um, named Yana Helerova, and I have her picture from the concentration camp. She was an kids. actual person. She was an actual person, and I played her. And I still have the original script. Did she survive? She did not survive. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And how old was the... She was actually seven years old. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I knew nothing about, I really, because they don't really teach at that age Holocaust, you know, really in schools. I don't know how much they teach about it now that that deeply, but they really made the kids that were in that show sit down and taught us. Um, and they took us to a museum in New York City and everything and took us through and showed us the artwork and the kids and taught us about how my my character had an older, not not her own sibling, but an older um Child, older kid that she was very close to that was 13 that was really her teacher and taught her 
And it was interesting to learn how the older kids really took the younger kids under their wing. And that was what the whole play was about, how they taught to keep the kids, you know, with hope and motivation and, and did this schooling on their own. And that's what they did to keep the kids, you know, to keep them from, from being in such a depression and kept the school going and that they used everything they could to do artwork. And they actually found this beautiful artwork that these kids did. And the, the poem, I never saw another butterfly that one of the kids wrote is what the, the premise of the play really starts with this poem. Marlo Thomas narrated it, one of the off Broadway, one of the, when I was there and did the show and she narrated it one of the um, times that I came and, um, and flew in to do it. Wow. It was yeah, really You were working neat. around some big names. Yeah. It was actually a really, really neat and almost too young to appreciate it, right? It, now, so you get back. Um, did the kids say, there's Amy, she's better than, or, uh, you know, I'm... You guys are a bunch of local yokels. I've seen the big city. Well, they always thought of us because we did. So we did, you know, it was very rural North Carolina when we moved there. So there wasn't a lot of, I mean, it wasn't like it is now up there. It was What very, county were you in? Ash County, one of okay. the poorest counties, still one of the poorer counties in North Carolina. And absolutely gorgeous. And absolutely gorgeous. I mean, if you're, if you're not, when you're, if you don't count the people that pop in and live there mm -hmm. now, you know, not the people that have, that have vacation homes, if you don't count that, because still I was even talking to, I was up there a couple of weeks ago at our house and I have a girlfriend that lives here in Charlotte whose mother has a retirement home up there. And they were telling me that the, the golf course up there, that a lot of the folks participate in a charity that buys shoes for the schools because so many kids show up up there that don't have shoes. Right. And so there's shoe closets there that the teachers can go to that people donate brand new, pay for and donate brand new shoes because so many kids show up with no shoes in the summer, in the winter, and they keep shoe closets with all sizes of shoes stocked. If that just tells you what a poor area it is, you don't think about showing up with no shoes. And so there was, um, so they, we were always thought of as even when we moved there, people called our house the mansion up on the hill. And it's it's just a it's just a four bedroom home, you know, what would be considered a middle class home, but people always said, you know, that we lived in this big mansion up on the on the sixteen acres up on the hill. And and it really was by you know, we moved from New York, so what we sold there we bought in in North Carolina was just, you know, we could buy a large piece of property with what we sold for in New York. And people did consider us to be like, you know, upper echelon up there, which would be considered here, you know, very middle class. So I don't think anyone treated us differently, but we were definitely at the higher end up there considered to what a lot of kids were coming from there. But we never thought of ourselves that way by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it was just, we were just normal, you know. What'd your dad do for a living? So my dad was in law enforcement. Oh, wow. But he, he was a Suffolk County police officer in New York. And he came under the delusion that, uh, you know, he would be able to move to a place like Jefferson and get right on the police force. And boy, what a good old boys network. And they weren't, they weren't having this city cop come and, and join the force there. So what did he do in North Carolina? So he started out, he worked at, um, at Ski Beach and up there in the mountains in yeah. security. And then he ended up working for the state. Hmm. And he worked in enforcement at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Hmm. And, um, and that's why we ultimately ended up leaving there. And he, when I started high school, when he got the first three kids, they finished high school when I started my freshman year. And we ended up moving to Clayton, North Carolina, right outside of Raleigh. And my dad joined DMV in Raleigh, and that's where he retired from. Yeah. So, so I go between people will say, "Where are you from?" And a lot of times, I end up spending most of my adult life in the in the Raleigh area because I ended up going to NC State, and so and then came back to the Raleigh area um, after being all over the place for my Why career. Why NC State? Um, you know, I. I, I loved, I ended up being an NC State girl and, and a lot of my friends went to UNCW and I didn't want to follow my friends. I, I started out at UNCG because I knew I wanted to do broadcasting. Um, How did you know that? 
I, I fell in love with television and wanting to be a television news reporter. And, and I, I loved, I started really loving news magazine television shows. So while other kids were watching like, like 60 minutes, um, I just fell in love with Barbara Walters. You know, other kids were watching The Simpsons and those kinds of things. And I was watching Dateline and, and all of the investigative, you know, 48 hours, um, any of that stuff. My mom and I would just, I, I was always watching TV with my mom. Other kids were, I wasn't a, a Did you partner. watch WRAL? I watched WRAL. I knew David Crabtree. I, and WRAL was my choice. I never watched Channel 11. I was always, I was a WRAL girl. And and knew Deborah uh, Deborah Mo- uh, Deborah sorry to say well Deborah Morgan yeah but uh, Donna Gregory was mm-hmm. my you know loved those folks um, grew up watching all of that and and listening to the radio you know on the way to what school. What year did you graduate high school? Nineteen ninety three. So I moved there in the end of ninety four. Yep. So nineteen ninety three. So while you were at NC State or UNCG. Yeah. yeah. So I, I started out at UNCG because I liked that they had, they had a broadcast um, school. They were doing, it was more, it was heavier um, on, it was, it wasn't a journalism per se. It was more broad. It was more the broad, it was the um, like TV, like um, photojournalism, mm-hmm. but they, but they were doing some writing stuff there. And, um, and I spent two years there and then I got in a car accident. Mm-hmm. Um, I hit a tree. I was driving home from, um, from a job that I took in the winter. I was working at a Rockola cafe and I fell asleep while I was driving and I hit a tree backwards. The police officers will tell you they don't know how I hit it backwards. God was definitely involved. And, um, and my mom and dad, I was afraid to go back to school and I transferred to state and thank God the, I was in a class, it was a writing class. Um, and they came in and asked for interns at WRAL. They were looking for interns for interviews. And I went in and I interviewed with the person that was working at the desk at the time. Her name was Kevin. And I remember Kevin. Yep. And she called me up and she said, the only shift we have is for you to come in at two o'clock in the morning and rip scripts. And I said, absolutely. And she told me later, I was like the fourth person they had called and everybody else had said, no, call me when you have a better shift. And I didn't care. Yeah, I would call do, me when I can anchor. Yeah. And I would do anything to get in that newsroom. If it was, they could have told me come in at two o'clock in the morning and empty trash cans. And I said, absolutely. Two o'clock in the morning. And I ripped scripts and, um, Did you get paid. We did get paid because Jim Goodman, who, you know, was the was the man that owned the TV station, said he would never have anybody work for him that didn't get paid, hmm. even interns, which I thought was great. And and Might I would, not pay him a lot, <laughs> not pay a lot. But, you know, but that, that was unheard of, I think, pretty much. I think most interns didn't get paid. And I thought it was great. I mean, like I, I get to I get to I mean, I would have paid them to get in the door because I thought it was the most magical thing to be in a newsroom. I mean, I would have done anything to get in that newsroom. Like I said, they could have said, come empty the trash cans and at, at whatever time. And I would have done it. You told me a Jim Axelrod. I have story. a great what Jim was... Axelrod story. So um, after I had ripped scripts for a while, I wasn't quite as enthusiastic as I was about it because, you know, I was I was I didn't drink in high school. And then I got to college and, you know, then it was, you know, it was partying. And so it was hard to go in at two o'clock in the morning. But I never missed a shift. Um, and you know, sometimes I'd be a little hungover and it was, I was less enthusiastic and, and, and Jim Axelrod happened to be filling in one morning. And so normally the scripts would come off and you'd rip them once and you'd be done. And, and Jim Axelrod was filling in and, and, um, you know, the normal anchors wouldn't do a lot of edits to the producers. Well, Jim Axelrod was doing edits and he then, was rewrite and he was rewriting and so and I was and re-rewriting and so I was having to and his desk was right next to the printer where you would pull the scripts off and I you know I was ready to be done you know because I'd be done and go home and and I was still there and he was rewriting and rewriting and I guess I went to the machine right next to him and I guess I kind of in a huff at puffy attitude I yanked the script off and maybe I said probably something under my breath and huffed and he said excuse me and I said yes and he said 
are you planning on working in this business? And I said, yes, very much. And he said, do you want to be good or do you want to be great? And he went back to what he was doing. And that stuck with me. It, obviously, I still remember it to this day. And, and that, he, that stuck he was me. great. And he was great. And, and I, I saw him and I talked to him and I, I stayed in touch with him for, for years after he left. And still to this day, when I hear them say, when I hear them throw to Jim Axelrod, I stop and I watch. Yes. No matter where I am in my house, mm -hmm. if I've got it on in the background and I hear them say Jim Axelrod, I do stop and I do watch because I know it's going to be, it's not going to be good. It's going to be great. What were your first jobs in the biz and the, the like real job? Yeah. So, so luckily working at WREL led me to my first job because while other kids were getting their, their videos and their tape shot by other kids, mine was being shot by photographers in the 26th market in the country. And, um, and they were, um, and I was having, you know, professional news reporters help me, you know, proof my my lead ins and my stories. So yeah, my with tape writing was great. And editing. Yeah, yeah, and they punch it up. Yeah. So I so my tape was great. But also um, I got the ability, the, the the really nice my intern job turned into me running the Carolina News Network. Wow. Um, so, and I was actually offered by WREL to take over the Carolina News Network as my first job when I graduated, which was great. But I was delivering tapes to WWAY, which is a small affiliate in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, to a guy named J John Evans. And so sometimes the, the reporters would get it, but because he was the news director and you have to do everything when you're your news director, we got to be really friendly. And so I said, hey, John, would you take a look at my tape? And he looked at it and he said, wow, you know, you're really good. At the same time, I was sending my tape all over the country. And he said, well, he said, I've got an opening, but I've got this guy. He's been working behind the scenes and he's really doing a good job. And I've got one job and I feel like I'm going to have to give it to him. So I had sent my tape and I got this job offer from Clarksburg, West Virginia. They didn't even want me to come in. They just wanted me. So I'm getting my stuff together to go to uh, the armpit of America, West Virginia. I'm sorry to any West Virginians, but I'm like being told by everybody. And so I'm planning to go to Clarksburg, West it's Virginia. Gorgeous. Yeah, I hear it's beautiful. And um, and they were offering me $14,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And John Evans comes to me and he says, oh my gosh, I've had another reporter leave. I can only offer you $12,000 a year. And I said, $12,000 a year sounds great. I'm going to Wilmington, North Carolina. So I started in Wilmington and um, was Did working. Did you get overtime? No, they didn't even pay overtime. <laughs> Did you get comp time? No, they nothing. <laughs> they paid my health insurance. You just worked 60, 70 hours. I worked 60. And, and they said, and he said, um, and you have to be able to shoot your own stuff. And I said, I can absolutely shoot my own stuff. And I could not shoot my own stuff. And I went to this <laughs> photographer that I loved. His name was Ed Wilson. I love Ed. Ed Wilson. And I said, I, the, I took this job. I have to shoot my own stuff. I don't know how to do it at all. And so he gave me, they shot on these 40 pound yes. cameras and he, and I weighed 70 pounds and he started teaching me on a weekend taught me how to shoot and edit my own stuff literally i think i had two weeks before i had to leave for wilmington and he came in on the weekends and taught me how to shoot my own stuff and edit my own stuff did you do that in heels i did it in high heels i did i shot my own but luckily when i got there they were on those brand new small cameras with the ah, small tapes they yes. had they had upgraded in wilmington so that was a lot lighter but i learned i did i shot my own stuff um, if I was good, they gave me a photographer if somebody was out, which was great. And I did. I, I worked there for a year and a half and I started filling in on a radio show there doing the news. And I loved it. I would go in there and I have so much fun. And there was a show there. It was Brian and Jim in the morning um, and they were on the alternative rock radio station. And Brian and Jim never worked separately. They would always take a vac They would always do take their vacations at the same time. And something happened. Jim had to be out. They might have had a death in the family or something. And he had to be out for a week. And they said, can you come and do the news for a solid week? And I asked the, I had to ask the actual general manager if I could go and I could stay there, you know, in the morning. Cause I'd have, I couldn't, wouldn't be able to come in and do any morning. I would have to work afternoons. And 
he said, that's fine. And so um, I went over there and I was just going to sit in and do the news the whole morning. And because I used to just really come in and just do bits with them. They would have me come in and they loved that I would do football picks. And they knew I was a big sports fan. So I knew my stuff because I've always grown up a sports fan. And um, and so they said, you know, can you because I would do this very thing where I would come in and I would act very girly. But I would actually do my real football picks. But I would say things like I pick that I would pick the dolphins because their uniforms look pretty and ha ha ha. But I would actually pick my picks and I would always beat them. You pretended to be I dumb. pretended. But this week that I came in, um, I was just supposed to do the news. And then Brian said, well, do you just want to do the show with me? Because you got a good personality and whatever. Well, I did the show for the whole week. And at the end of the week, the program director said to me, hey, you're really good at this radio stuff. And we're actually we just bought a new we're putting a new radio s- signal. We're putting a new show on. We've looked all over the country for a female talent and everybody stinks and you're really good. Would you want to do radio? And I said, are you kidding me? I'm, that is an insult. I'm going to be the next Barbara Walters. And he said, it pays $25,000 a year. And I said, where do I sign up? <laughs> and so I, well, I went back to the radio station. You doubled your pay? I doubled my pay. And so I went back and I talked to the general manager. That's unusual because you usually think of... Radio as being a lot less. Now, were they syndicated? No. Wow. Um, the, the, the general manager, the, the owner of those radio stations was that it was owned independently ah. by a guy out of Mississippi and the guy who was the general manager, they were crazy. They just really liked each other and they just had all this money and he just liked me. And I went back to the general manager of the, the, um, TV station. And he said, I've listened to you all Meek, and my wife and I've listened to you all week. And we just think you have a talent for this. And we're actually going to let you out of your contract. And we're cheap. And we're cheap. <laughs> and we can't do that. And we're, we just feel like we really do feel like this is your thing. And so I, that's how I landed in radio. Wow. I know. And then I did radio for the next 10 years. And, and, I, and I, you went to the big city. I too. did. I, I spent I popped around radio stations in eastern North Carolina. And then my morning show partner actually sent my tape to Mancow in Chicago. I didn't even send it. To what? To Man Cow, this nationally syndicated show in Chicago, which is actually kind of Howard Stern light. He and Howard mm. Stern actually had a rivalry. Um, and he sent my tape and I they called me and I was like, what is going on? I'm like 27 years old and like, you know, third largest market in the country, nationally syndicated. And I went there and, and they liked me. And the general manager of that radio station, when they said they wanted to hire me, called me in and he said, don't take this job. You're too nice of a girl. You don't want to be here. You don't want to be part of this mess. And I said, are you kidding me? Like, this is like the third largest market in the country. Well, you're also signing up for verbal abuse. Oh, it was. It's like you're signing up for sexual harassment. It was. Yeah. And I said, but I I can handle this. Like, I've dealt with this. You know, that whole industry is abuse and sexual harassment. And I said, I'm not afraid of them. I think less so now. I think they can get. I'm sure it probably is now. But it but it always was. You know, then it was. And And this wasn't NPR. (laughs) No. And and I had I had always approached it where, you know, I came in at a time and I feel like I was kind of a trailblazer because I when I signed up for my first show, you know, we built that show where I came in at a time when women in radio were giggle boxes. And I came in and said I wasn't going to be that. And my morning show partner, male partners were always fine with me being an equal and me being more kitten with a whip. That's the shows I built. It was always, he's the guy you want as your husband, and she's the woman you wish you could be. I was the bitch to their huggy guy. And so I was okay with it because I gave it as good as I got it. And so I walked in there with that attitude. Like I wasn't going to be- And you almost got in a fist fight one time. I almost got in a fist fight with Andrew. Yeah. Andrew Dice Clay came in and- and What a great guy to punch. Well, and he was was giving it to me. and, And the final straw with him was I said, look, you can't even sell out high school basketball arenas anymore. So don't talk to me. And he came at me physically and was going to hit me. This wasn't on the air. This was on the air. One of the guys finally got in between us and I wasn't stepping back. I didn't step back. I didn't flinch. It's like, come at me, you know, and I wasn't going to step back. And the the host of the show was going to let it happen. And, and, you know, and that was, and that was the final final for me when that host wasn't going to, when the host wasn't going to stop it, 
you know, I was like, and finally I was like, that's enough. When you're not going to protect me, when you're not going to do your job. Well, that was on another way of saying that his words had failed him. Yeah. So it showed the limit of his ability as a comic yeah. that he didn't know how to do. He couldn't do his job. That was yeah. me for the end. And that was the end of it. This is, this isn't fun for me anymore. It's not, it lost, it stopped being fun. And when it stopped being fun, it was like, now it's, it's not good radio. It's mm. not good. And when it stopped being good radio, then I was like, I'm done with you. And, and I came back home and I joined the show that I listened to growing up. I came back to Raleigh and, and Bob was still there and Madison had left mm -hmm. and, and I stepped into her role. And I did that show until it wasn't fun anymore. And that was a Jim Goodman. That was that a capital. Was, that was capital broadcasting again. I came back home, right? Yeah. And that's where I, that's where I, and then that stopped being fun. And that's when I went and joined corporate America. <laughs> well, what, why did it stop being fun? Um, I turned 30 and, mm. and it was, it was too much of. Did you have to get up early in the morning? Yeah. And I, and that got like tiring. What time? I would be up at, I'd leave the house at four in the morning and I had done it. And, and I'm that kind of person where, you know, I could have sat and I could have done morning radio till now and I could have retired. And, and Do you listen to podcasts? I don't listen to them much. Hmm. And it's something I've thought about. I mean, I loved radio. You've got a great voice and you're a student of the world. Do you still follow sports? I do. What do you think of the Panthers this year? I'm worried. Yeah, you should be. Yeah. I went to, I went to a preseason game. Yeah, that, that, I was, I was very hopeful. Yes. And I am not. And they could still pull it around. I went in very hopeful and now I'm not there. Are you a fan? I'm a fan and I'm a baseball fan and my baseball teams let me down. And, uh, and now, so, teams? so I, so I was, I was, I grew up a Yankees fan. Come over to the Braves. I know. And, and then the Cubs, because again, Chicago. And then now I'm like, maybe I have to be a Braves fan. It's like, <laughs> it's like all my teams. I mean, the, anymore. It's like, I, and then I'm a hockey fan. So I have my hurricanes. So I have them. What's, um, like if you had to do a podcast, what what's something that you're like really like you could talk all the time about? Me? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, but no. no, I mean that's fine. Yeah, as, as long as like what about you could you talk about? Uh, no, I just think I just I just think the world. I think I'm just get so interested in just what's going on in okay. the world. Okay, if you hit one of the big Powerballs and had like two three hundred million dollars. All of a sudden, yeah. What would you do with I it? I just, I would love to go back to doing a radio show where we just talk about what's going on. The best radio show I ever did. I had a partner, and we just came in every day and just talked about the world, like what's going on today. Mm. What do you mean, what's going on? Because there's a lot of things going. Well, on. that was it. I mean, here in Latta Park in Charlotte, North Carolina. There was this big hawk coming around. I think that hawk's kind of young. Yeah. Um, so that's going on today. I mean, we just kind of talked about current events and then we, we talked to people and, and it was just interesting. Well, there are a lot of murder podcasts. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, uh, pop culture. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of huge amount of politics yeah. one way or the other. But whatever genre, there's a great deal of sameness. Mm -hmm. um, and so what do you think your guys down in Wilmington saw in you that set you apart? I mean, I think for me, it was my the my humor and spin that I brought to your personality, my personality. Yeah. yeah. And how would you describe your personality? Well, I think it was that I'm quick, I'm quick witted in that I bring a quirky take to things. I bring a, an unexpected spin to things. Do you call yourself, uh, 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 are you registered D or R? Are you, would you call yourself a feminist? Um, no, I wouldn't call myself a feminist. But you are a feminist. Do you think? Yes. Really? <laughs> 
Uh, do you believe a woman should be have the same rights as a man, fewer rights than a man, or more rights than a man? No, I would say the same. Then you, congratulations, well, you're, okay. you're a feminist. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Why do you think you're not a feminist? What do you think well, a feminist I don't, I don't is think that, that you're makes not? You a feminist. I just think that makes you a human being. It's the very definition of a feminist. But why does that make you a feminist? That just makes you a human being. Everyone should have the same rights. Not everyone believes that. Oh. So let me put it to you this way. Um, if it were all women on the Supreme Court and all feminist women on the Supreme Court and the vast majority of women in Congress were women of color in their 30s. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority... But I don't think it should be that way. Okay, it, maybe it shouldn't, but let's say it was. Mm -hmm. Do you ever imagine a Congress and a Supreme Court and a president that would say, if I wanted to get a vasectomy, nope, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're going to have to find a state in which you can do that. Can you ever imagine that? No. Well, that's essentially what you have right now. Yeah. Is half of America is trying to tell women, if you're going to have a stillbirth, mm -hmm. you have to go to term. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get that. It's and, and that's why there's a need for genuine equality well no i agree with that yeah yeah but that's why that's why to me i don't know that they're i don't i don't like i don't like the label labels yes labels bother me yeah i don't like labels well yeah they 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 like i don't like to be labeled well do you identify as a woman well yes that's the label do you identify I, as white i don't <laughs> i mean people are going to put labels I on know. you whether you want to reject them or not yeah and you can reject them. Yeah. You could sh shave your head and say, call me they. Yeah. I just feel, I, I think some labels come with, with negative connotations. Like woman doesn't come with a negative connotation. Depends on who you're talking to. Well, that's true. Talking to an incel, it does. Yeah. 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 Huh. It's icky. It is icky. I don't like, I don't like icky. I know. Yeah. I'm I not know. a fan. So let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. uh, because you'd have a different take. What does flirting, what is safe or, yeah, safe yeah. flirting look like to you? So, so this is something that I, so this will make me unpopular. <laughs> because I had a really hard time with the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. I think because of where I came from, right? And what I dealt with. Yeah. And Well, have you been sexually assaulted? No. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So I, I had a hard time with it, I think because- But you've certainly been hit on. Yeah. It's just nobody laid their hands on you. Yeah. I would define sexual assault as if someone put their hand on me mm -hmm. and I brushed their hand off, I don't consider that sexual assault. If you put your hand on me and I didn't like it, I would say, get your hand off me. I don't consider that sexual assault. And then if they came after you anyway and overpowered you. That I would consider sexual assault. Mm -hmm. No one has ever overpowered me. There have certainly been people put their hand on me. And have you I ever was... slapped anybody? No. No. I've been slapped. You've been slapped? Well, I could For say something I said. Yeah. No. But I would I would say, like, I've had someone, you know, come, like, come at me and you say no, but I don't consider that sexual assault. I mean, sexual assault to me is you really are, you are on me. But if someone said something, as obviously people did yeah. for a living, mm -hmm. they said things yeah. to you which are, are offensive, yeah. which most of the country would find offensive. Yeah. And that offensive speech they defined as entertainment. Yeah. Uh, so I. So that's why. So what my problem is, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Let's say theoretically that a gentleman 
um, admires a young lady and has shown some interest just talking, like maybe saying, oh, you look nice or whatever, and then sends her flowers. Mm-hmm. And that's as far as it goes. And she files a complaint against him and makes a big to do and feels as though she has been that she has been in some way I've never heard of that the one that's happened hmm. in, in a world where I live and know and a big deal was brought about and some action was taken and so there were consequences and this is in her mind under the Me Too movement well if it depends on what he said and what she it said. Was, it was, like, yep. if she said, please don't ever contact me again, and he sends her flowers, then, yeah. And for me, my problem is with some of these movements that people, it's the same thing with, like, you know, what happens with with rape sometimes, where there are there are real victims and then there are people that use things that that muddy the waters mm-hmm. and i feel like with the me too movement there was a lot of muddying of the waters yeah which did not serve serve the movement well right. and and i feel like that's where i got irritated because you know, and, I, and maybe it's because I'm a tougher breed. Maybe it's because I'm preconditioned because I'm older. Um, I came up around more stuff that I don't consider. Maybe it's because my my tolerance is bigger. Um, and you say like, flirting, you know, for me, I don't get offended very easily. And maybe that's because of the world I lived in. I, I'm just tougher all the way around. And I think I was tougher all the way around before I got in the business I was in. Maybe it's coming from always being kind of a guy's girl that, and that's why it's a hard, it's hard for me. I think there's a lot of gray area and it's, And part of it for me is I feel like there's a lot of people speaking for me as a woman and I don't like that. And then I get looked at as being the bad, the bad guy. Uh, Feel free not to answer. Uh, Do you vote? Yes. Are you registered? Yes. Obviously. Yes. Are you registered as a Republican, a Democrat or unaffiliated? I'm registered as a Republican, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you that I, I was registered as a Republican. And I will say I was very Republican, but in my later, the second half of my career, you know, I was in corporate America. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to DC in my corporate life, I actually ended up in an agency and my book of business was all nonprofits in the public health sector. And I came back from DC very in the middle Mm -hmm. and I vote now very in the middle. So I'm registered Republican, but I vote, I, I like to say I'm for what's right. You own a gun? I own a gun. Yeah. Um, I am for what's right. Mm-hmm. I don't own a gun. My family owns guns. I would own a gun. I don't personally have a gun, but I would own a gun. And my everyone in my family owns guns. I don't own a gun because my husband doesn't allow me to own a gun. But if you ran for office, mm-hmm. would you declare as? I would probably declare as unaffiliated, like as an independent. It's hard to get elected. Yeah. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> no, I would probably now that I th- I would probably I would probably affiliate Republican. Mm-hmm. You're probably right. And then it would be hard to be in the middle. Yeah. I don't know that I'd run for office. <laughs> well, that's too bad. I mean, it's too bad that it's no longer about, you know, 
public service. I think what I would rather do than run for office is I'd rather lobby. Hmm. And so what's something you would lobby for? I would love to get involved with lobbying for something with alcoholism. Okay. Treatment. Oh, like more dollars for... Treatment. Um, to try to help make treatment affordable and available. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to get that started. I don't know where to even begin with that. But well, I can introduce you to some people yeah. who go to Washington. Uh, yeah, and that's something I would love to get involved with because I think it, I think that alcohol treatment would help with a lot of other things that is an underlying issue. Well, one big way would be alternative sentencing for first offenders. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be, and also for treatment behind bars. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Even for mandatory treatment mm-hmm. behind bars. So there are people who are, who are come from all sides of the political spectrum who are agreeing now on alternative sentencing. They're getting high on their supply. And um, so there are ways to do that. It's something I feel very, it's in, it's been in my heart for a while now. And it's something I feel passionate about. It's just that I have not, I even asked a friend of mine that um, I worked for Michelin for a while and he was the lobbyist for Michelin. And I had sat down with him and had lunch last week and I asked him and he was like, I don't know those people. He's like, I don't know how to help you. Yeah, I can, I can point you to people. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, If we got struck by lightning today Mm -hmm. and the only thing that survived was this little piece of audio, what is your legacy? I hope that my legacy is my family, my nieces and nephews, my seven nieces and nephews. They are my world. They are the most amazing human beings. And I hope that I have taught them things. I am a very different kind of aunt. Um, I'm very different from their parents. I am a strange human being. Um, I think I'm, I've hopefully taught them that they can kind of be something different, anything that they want to be. I hope I've taught them about joy in a different way. Um, They make me tear up. Um, I hope that I've taught them you can overcome things, that there's never a bottom, that you can always rise up, that love is... um, eternal and everlasting for them and that they are all very very important and that i am in awe of them what's your experience of god now that he is forgiving that he can sometimes do things that you don't understand, but that sometimes through those experiences that cause pain, there comes great joy. Joy cometh in the morning. Nice. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you making time. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Amy. That was so much fun. We sat there in Latta Park with the cicadas in the background and the birds and the dogs and the church bells and everything else. Just sat at the picnic table. And I always learn. I always learn so much about folks and about what multidimensional people we are. Uh, We're not just an adjective. We're not a noun. We're not a box or a category. Thank you, Amy. It was fun. 
In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. And a huge shout-out and thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com, In Her Words, the podcast, or voicelocket.com. My latest venture, Onward and Upward. Thanks. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.